Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. Adam, how was that meditation? Was that familiar to you? Pretty familiar, yeah. There's um, the same guidance you heard in that meditation are on the website in five minutes to 45 minute sessions. Mm -hmm. And I suggest if you're going to continue with us to listen to that, those guided meditations. Um, if you're comfortable with longer periods of time, meditate as long as you'd like. But I suggest newcomers to start with five or ten minutes and do that twice a day. Uh, you're comfortable with that, and then you can extend the time. And then just understand that the Buddha taught a practice that is not just meditation, but it's founded in meditation in a very specific type of meditation. And then he taught seven other factors, and that's what we talk about here in every class. So um, the purpose of the Buddha's Dhamma is to end a common human problem known as ignorance of four noble truths. And four noble truths describe the cause of all stress and suffering, all distraction, all confusion uh, in human beings. So the, the first noble truth simply states that, that there is stress and suffering in the world. The second noble truth is that craving for and clinging for things to be different than they are in the world, meaning me in relation to the world, is the cause of that stress and suffering. The third noble truth is that it's possible to end that wrong view that creates that stress and suffering. And the fourth noble truth is that the Eightfold Path is the path leading to the cessation of all wrong views and developing right view. Um, founded in that right view is a well-concentrated mind. And that makes sense, wouldn't it? That a mind that is distracted to the point of stress would need to acquire a certain level of concentration in order to, to obviate that stress. And so the Buddha's Dhamma is founded in a one meditation method known as jhana meditation that we just did. Uh, and then we incorporate seven other factors, and that's known as integrating the Eightfold Path. And it is that path that leads us to develop a calm and peaceful mind, no matter what's occurring in the world. And it is that path that develops understanding of Four Noble Truths. And this is the second half of the Anapanasati Sutta. I gave the first talk on, uh, what's today, Saturday, on Tuesday. Um, and this is where I ended up. The Buddha's talking about here, what he's talking about here is the proper method of meditation, meaning as described in the four foundations of mindfulness. The four foundations of mindfulness are initially being mindful of, of the breath in the body. That's how we begin our jhana sessions. Then to be mindful that feelings arise and pass away and thoughts arise and pass away as a natural occurrence of having a human life. In jhana meditation, we simply recognize feelings and thoughts arising and passing away, and we're no longer distracted by that. We recognize that we're caught up in that thinking. We simply take a breath and unite the mind and the body. And that begins to establish the fourth foundation of mindfulness, which is recognizing that the present quality of our mind, no matter what, is always changing, and to be at peace with the present quality of mind. That's the fourth foundation of mindfulness. And that's a rather profound teaching um, that takes some Dhamma practice to understand the scope of what that really means. But it's very subtle, but, and it's very broad. So let me, let me start where I uh, ended up last Tuesday.
Again, the Buddha is referring to the four foundations of mindfulness, establishing jhana meditation. Friends, this is the, the direct path for the purification of all beings, for the cessation of sorrow and regret. Imagine living a life with no sorrow or regret, or no possibility of sorrow or regret. For the disappearance of pain and distress, for the establishing of the right method of practice. The Buddha is inferring that there's a right method and there's a wrong method. And remember, this was 2,600 years ago, where the Buddha is actually teaching and speaking to his original Sangha. And even then, they were grasping at different rituals and practices. And for the complete unbinding from wrong views. In other words, the four foundations of mindfulness. The Buddha continues. The four foundations of mindfulness, when appropriately developed, meaning we can, appropriate, we can develop them inappropriately, when they're appropriately developed, bring the seven factors for awakening to their culmination. The seven factors for awakening, when appropriately, appropriately developed, brings clear know, knowing or right understanding or right view and release from clinging to wrong or ignorant views to their culmination. The seven factors of awakening are simply factors that we incorporate into our Dharma practice and into our life as a consequence of developing the entire Eightfold Path. This next section is called Mindfulness of In-and-Out Breathing. Now, how is mindfulness of in-and-out breathing appropriately developed so as to be of great benefit? Again, the Buddha is simply describing authentic and effective Dharma practice. A monk or a nun, having gone to the wilderness, to the shade of a tree or an empty hut, the Buddha is simply saying, someone who has established seclusion from the world, the shade of a tree or an empty hut, sits down, folding his legs crosswise and holding his body erect and setting mindfulness to the fore. What does it mean, setting mindfulness to the fore? It means that we're setting we're being mindful of our mindfulness and it's, it's the point of our focus. Always, always mindful of the breath, they breathe in. No other instruction, no long breath, no short breath, no this or no that. Always mindful of the breath. What the Buddha is saying, however you find your breath, that's the breath we use in jhana meditation. Don't manipulate it, don't change it, don't fall into the trap of that your breath is anything other than a tool to unite your mind and your body. Because once we start manipulating the breath, we're manipulating our meditation practice and we're lost. He breathes in. Always mindful, they breathe in. Always mindful of the breath in the body, they breathe out. That's the basic jhana practice. Being mindful of the in-breath, the arising of phenomena, and being mindful of the out-breath, the cessation of phenomena. And if you're having trouble connecting with your breath, exaggerate your breath a few times and then you'll connect. Take, take some very deep, very exaggerated breath and you'll connect with your breath and then breathe normally, in-breath and out-breath. When breathing in, they notice they're breathing in. Why does the Buddha say something so obvious? Because that's profound instruction that most people don't get. In meditation, they start a meditation practice and they're grasping after ever new, ever romantic, ever novel techniques without ever addressing that simple basic fact in my noticing that I'm breathing. Most human beings spend their entire life hardly ever noticing that they're breathing. Sometimes they'll notice it when they're stressed out. <gasps> we catch our breath. But most normal, peaceful breaths go our whole lives unnoticed. As Dharma practitioners, we start incorporating the most basic 
essential nature of our life, our breath. And we use that essential nature to connect us to reality of Four Noble Truths by uniting our mind and our body using that simple tool, unembellished. It's just my breath. And again, if we embellish our breath in any way, as a Buddhist teaching us, we're losing jhana meditation. <clears throat> when breathing out, they notice they're breathing out. Again, a simple instruction, but we notice it. That's what we're doing in jhana meditation. We're noticing the in-breath, we're noticing the out-breath. We're noticing impermanence. We're noticing the arising and the passing away of all phenomena. We're noticing the arising and passing away of our own ideas, our own thoughts. Or, when breathing in short, they notice they're breathing in short. We don't manipulate a short breath or a long breath. We simply notice, this is how I'm breathing now. Or, when breathing out short, they notice I'm breathing out short. They train themselves. I will breathe in, sensitive to the entire body. What does that mean? It doesn't mean we take our jhana meditation practice and incorporate yoga nidra and do a body scan. If, the, if that's what the Buddha intended, he would have said, start at your toes and meditate up, or start at your head and meditate down. He doesn't say that. He said, sensitive to the entire body. What does he mean? Again, he means for most of us, for the first time in our life, we're using our mind to unite ourselves in our body and to be sensitive to that body. There's a difference between sensitive to and sensually engaged, doesn't it? Isn't, isn't there, I should say. Sensitive, in this sense, is a refined level of mindfulness. Holding in mind, what is this experience like? What does it mean? What does it feel like? What is it? What am I thinking about? Because now we can get into the subtleties of it, of having a mind united in our body. That's what we notice. We notice the breath in the body, the in-breath and the out-breath. If it's a short breath or a long breath, we notice that. And we notice a mind united to its body, a mind sensitive to the entire body. They train themselves. I will breathe out, sensitive to the entire body. They train themselves. I will breathe in, calming bodily fabrications. As a consequence, this isn't the intention. As a consequence of breathing in, and Adam, this is a little bit out of context for you because what the Buddha is referring to, Adam, uh, Blue Adam, I think. Um, today. today. He, he's, yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> he's relating this to dependent origination. And the second factor of that, meaning from ignorance of Four Noble Truths come mental fabrications, a corrupted way of living in the world. In the beginning phase of jhana meditation, we breathe in, and as a natural consequence of proper meditation, bodily fabrications calm. We're not doing anything to them. We're not addressing them directly. We're not analyzing them. We're not questioning where do they come from? Why do I have them? Why am I so screwed up that I have fabrications? We simply recognize there's fabrications and this method calms <clears throat> bodily fabrications. Most other methods that I practice, they don't address it this way, but they're designed to mask bodily fabrications. And I won't get deep into that. So rather than recognize and abandon fabrications, most modern meditation techniques encourage more fabrications, meaning speculative establishments of yourself in non-physical realms. They train themselves. 
I will breathe out, calming bodily fabrications. Breathing in and breathing out. All the while calming bodily fabrications. They train themselves. I will breathe in. Sensitive to rapture. Rapture is an archaic term. In this sense, it doesn't mean the second coming of Christ. It simply means I will breathe in and breathe out, mindful of joyful engagement with the Dhamma. That's what rapture means in this sense. Joyful engagement with the Dhamma. And that's an important aspect of jhana meditation because it takes us from that almost a begrudging attitude that I'm meditating because I know I should and because that crazy bald guy said I have to but we really don't want to. We're not joyfully engaged in our practice. Why? Because we actually haven't taken refuge in it. And that goes back, Adam, there's, I should say, if you go on the website and you start at the welcome page and then take the website from the front page on down, that's a good way to start beginning to engage in the Dhamma. And you'll also notice there's three suttas that describe taking true refuge in the Dhamma. Excuse And that's an important aspect of developing Dhamma practice that I teach a lot of classes on. Uh, but what it means is that we understand that a human being actually did this, he awakened, that he left his Dhamma, and that Dhamma is still here, that's the second refuge. And the third refuge is a well-informed and well-focused Sangha that we become a part of, that's the third refuge. And because of that, because of understanding the nature of true refuge, we are joyfully engaged in this practice of as the Buddha puts it, rightly self-awakening. And that's where joyful engagement comes from. They train themselves. I will breathe out, sensitive to joyful engagement, sensitive to rapture. They train themselves. I will breathe in, sensitive to pleasure. They train themselves. I will breathe out, sensitive to pleasure. It doesn't mean that I'm chasing pleasurable experiences. It means I'm just simply sensitive to them. Another way to say it, it might be that I'm open to it, which is a denial of most of modern Buddhism, which seeks, which teaches that the Buddha taught self-denial. He didn't teach anything of the, core, of the sort. He taught the only method of true self-actualization that I've ever come across, and I studied with some of the modern self-actualization so-called masters. The Buddha understood it, and he taught that. He, they train themselves, I will breathe in, sensitive to mental fabrications. They train themselves, I will breathe out, sensitive to mental fabrications. Sensitive to it, being mindful of it, recognizing them. They train themselves, I will breathe in, calming mental fabrications. They train themselves, I will breathe out, calming mental fabrications. They train themselves, I will breathe in, sensitive to the mind, being mindful, relating to the fourth foundation of mindfulness. These aren't things that we develop during meditation. They're things that we simply notice in meditation and come back to the sensation of breathing. And even this fourth foundation of mindfulness, we notice it, we notice its ever-changing nature and we come back to the sensation of breathing. They train themselves. I will breathe out sensitive to the mind or the quality of the mind, the present quality of the mind, the fourth foundation of mindfulness. You'll often hear me say, we learn to be at peace with, peace with less than peaceful mind states. That's what I'm referring to. To most people at the beginning of practice, that sounds like nonsense. How can I be at peace with a less than peaceful mind state? Isn't that everything? Well, the Buddha teaches, yes, we can. Because in 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 the beginnings of practice, our minds are so entangled in the world that they're a perfect metaphor for how we view the world. And so using that and as the metaphor, but also the actual practice of disentangling ourselves from the world is the right teaching, isn't it? Pointing us back that the entire life experience that we're having is not going on out there. 
everything we're experiencing is in this mind united in its body. And the perceptions that are formed by those experiences are rooted in a fabrication or in an awakened person, a lack of fabrication or seeing reality, living within the framework of Four Noble Truths. And to do that, they train themselves, breathing in while calming the mind, noticing that the mind is calming. As a natural consequence of Dhamma practice, of jhana meditation, the mind calms. They train themselves, I will breathe out, calming the mind. They train themselves, I will breathe in, steadying the mind. As a simple consequence of jhana meditation, my mind steadies. I don't have to grasp after steadiness. They train themselves, I will breathe out, steadying the mind. They train themselves, I will breathe in, releasing the mind. What a powerful statement. Think of the mind that we have a grip on our mind. And we grip so tightly to our minds because we are identified with our thoughts. Our thoughts are me. So of course I'm going to be attached and I'm going to be um, grasping after and clinging to these thoughts because these thoughts define who I am in the world. They're who I've decided I am in relation to the world. My thoughts encompass everything I think I need to be safe and happy in the world. And every one of those thoughts is a wrong thought because they're rooted in ignorance of Four Noble Truths. That doesn't mean that I will be um, unsuccessful in life. And it might even, on the outside, it might even appear that I'm very, very successful. I might have all the money in the world. I might become, I'm not making a political statement, but I might even become President of the United States. That's not a qualification for being awakened. It might be a qualification for being woke. Two different things, isn't it? Awake and being awoke. Woken, being awakened. It's up to us to become rightly self-awakened through this process. And it's a process that we're able to recognize because an awakened human being taught us how to recognize it in this sutta, this most important sutta. I'm interested to hear what David's got to say when we're done here. He trains himself. I will breathe out, releasing the mind. It's up to me to release the mind from fabrications, from false views. They train themselves. I will breathe in, focusing on inconstancy. Focusing on. What does it mean? Another word for focusing is being mindful. Noticing the ever-changing nature of worldly phenomena, but most importantly, the ever-changing nature of my own thoughts and my own thought constructs. They They train themselves, I will breathe out, focusing on impermanence. They train themselves, I will breathe in, focusing on dispassion, meaning recognizing that dispassion is developing in me because I'm diminishing eye-making. They breathe in, they train themselves, I will breathe out, focusing on dispassion. So these concepts that the Buddha is teaching us, now we're being incorporated into our jhana practice. I breathe in, noticing any dispassion in my body. Now because the concept has been introduced to me as part of my jhana practice, I'm not grasping after, is, is this passion present right now? I'm noticing the development of this passion. I'm noticing it as a consequence of, of previously noticing my mind is becoming calmer. Notice how almost every class I ask you or we discuss the present quality of your meditation practice or your Dhamma practice. That's why. Because that question points your mind, whether I'm asking it or you're asking it yourself, right back to the Anapanasati Sutta. What is the present quality of my relationship with my calm mind, with my body? Is my mind united in my body? With this passion. In my meditation right now, am I noticing passion for 
the next moment, for the next thing, for the next idea, for the next relationship? Do I notice it? Yes. Now I notice this passion. That's Dharma practice. That's practicing refined mindfulness at the point of contact during, during meditation, during jhana meditation. And when we do it in that setting, we're also able to take it off our cushion and do it in our moment-by-moment life. They train themselves. I will breathe in, focusing on cessation. Cessation of what? Cessation of ignorance. We're noticing the... Um, what's the right word? It's not... The, I'm, I want to... We're noticing the building on the foundation of jhana because these are later developments, aren't they? We're noticing in this moment... The cessation of, a, of this moment rooted in ignorance, meaning I notice that I am distressed in some way. In meditation, we recognize that that distress is caused by the way I'm thinking about myself in relation to the world in this moment. And in this moment, because I'm engaged in Dhamma practice, in authentic Dhamma practice, I have the self-awakening thought, wait a minute. I am caught up in my passions. I'm caught up in distraction. I'm caught up in stress. I'm caught up in confusion. I'm caught up in ignorance of Four Noble Truth. And in this moment, now I'm not. And in the next moment, your next thought might be a thought rooted in ignorance of Four Noble Truths. But then you will immediately recognize it, which is something you never did before Dharma practice. Recognize your own ignorance of Four Noble Truth. And as you recognize it, you now have the tools to take a breath. Recognize that it is contrary and antithetical to an Eightfold Path. And you simply let it go. And that, that when you hear me say that Dhamma practice is simple, that's what I'm talking about. It is that, that simple. Our minds are complicated and make it much more difficult and much more indirect than it needs to be. That's why we have all this, this practice. But every time we, un, we unite our mind and our body, we are practicing the Dhamma. And we have an opportunity to awaken. And that's all that the Buddha ever promises us, is giving us an opportunity to awaken. The rest is up to us. And what you notice, John, is you notice that you're abandoning the distractions. It's giving yeah. you that space to be aware of what you just said. Yes. Dave was pointing out a key point in the Dhamma. And, and I, he didn't use the word must, but I would say you must notice it. Because that's what will continue to guide your Dhamma practice. And as you notice the ever-developing levels of concentration and the ever-developing levels of calm as described here, now your practice becomes self-invigorating. You, and you're, you're developing that thing that is so vital to a rapture by simply noticing that it's working. I know when I noticed it, it was in, in my mind, and I probably did it physically too, I was jumping for joy because after years and years of practice, I had an experience of actually changing my mind. And I never had that experience until I came to the Buddha's Dhamma. In a palpable, palpable way. A way that actually had an effect on my behavior. Which up until then I couldn't figure out. And most people can't. Nobody, unless you're pathological, and it's very, very rare. Pathological mental illness is very rare in the world. But unless you're pathological, you will notice when you hurt someone and you hurt yourself. And that will create its own type of conditioning. We talk about that. And that's the kind of thing that we need to recognize and unravel. It's the kind of thing that we create conditioning against recognizing, though. And I won't get too deep into that, that type of conditioning, but we talk about that often. They train themselves. I will breathe 
I will breathe out, focusing on cessation. They train themselves. I will breathe in, focusing on relinquishment. So, why does the Buddha re- rec- uh, speak of um, <clears throat> cessation and relinquishment? Why? Because they're two different things. Cessation is the uh, cessation is the verb towards awakening. Relinquishment is a noun. It's the state of awakening. Does that make sense to everyone? Okay. They train themselves. I will breathe out, focusing on relinquishment. As David said, it's important to recognize that. Why? Because that's Dhamma practice. No one gives us release. No one gives us cessation. No one gives us relinquishment. We give it to ourselves, but we have to notice that that's what we're doing in our Dhamma practice. If we don't recognize it, it cannot become part of our Dhamma practice. We can't own it. And if we don't own Dhamma practice, all that we will continue to own is ignorance of Four Noble Truths. The Buddha continues, This is how mindfulness of in and out breathing is developed and pursued so as to be of great benefit. This is how we do it. There's nothing left to any kind of speculative thought or any additional practice. This is how we do it. Um, I'm going to finish this. Um, yeah, I, I let me go a little bit longer, but I'm not, we're not going to finish this today. Um, the next section, I'm going to go for about 10 more minutes, and then we'll finish this on Tuesday, and then we'll finish um, this series on next Saturday. The Buddha continues. Now, how is mindfulness of the in-breath and the out-breath appropriately developed so as to bring the four foundations of mindfulness to their culmination? Again, simple instruction. This is instruction and jhana meditation and developing those four foundations of, med- of mindfulness. On whatever occasion, a Dhamma practitioner breathing in long is mindful of breathing in long. Again, notice the Buddha is not saying this Dhamma practitioner now starts breathing in long. They find themselves meditating, breathing, and they find themselves they're taking long breaths. That's it. You notice that your breath is long. Or breathing out long is mindful of breathing out long. So what the Buddha is saying is no matter how you find your breath in that session, that's your breath. Breathe out long, breathe in long, breathe out long. Breathe in short, breathe out short. Or breathing in short is mindful of breathing in short. Or breathing out short is mindful of breathing out short. They continue to train their mind no matter how they're breathing. Again, you could hear this from 2,600 years ago. The Buddha is saying, do not manipulate your mind in any way. However you find your mind, that's your mind. And if you think about the whole purpose of the Buddha's Dhamma is to develop a common peaceful mind no matter what's occurring, developing a common peaceful attitude towards our breath is essential, isn't it? And a person that is a person that has PTSD has a very difficult time with that, and we, I can touch on that. But every one of us has been traumatized by life, and every one of us will have at least a little bit of a difficulty simply being present with our breath because of that. The more we do it, the more automatic it becomes, just as the Buddha's teaching here. If it's difficulty to do it for five minutes, to be mindful of your breath, do it for three minutes. If three minutes is too much, do it for one minute. And simply come back to it. And a human being who awakens said, if you do that, and you continue to engage in that type of right effort, you will awaken. And he he almost guarantees it. Remember the Satipatthana Sutta as well. He almost guarantees that you'll do it in this lifetime. 
They train the mind. I will breathe in. I will breathe in and breathe out sensitive to the body. Bringing mindfulness to the fore to what is occurring. That, that means bringing mindfulness to the, to the breath in the body to what is occurring. They breathe. They train themselves. I will breathe in and breathe out calming bodily fabrications. On this occasion, when this occurs, meaning this Dhamma practitioner remains focused on the breath in the body in and of itself. Another most significant saying, in and of itself means without embellishment. Again, another way of saying, do not manipulate your breath in any way. Do not attach anything to the breath. Ardent, alert, and mindful while putting aside craving and distress with reference to the world. With refer- what reference? In, reference to, in re- reference to me, in reference to the world. In reference to the world. I tell you, friends, the in and out breath is unsurpassed as a body among bodies. What is that? All the speculation you might have, all the celestial applications you might find yourself in, jhana meditation is the one to extract you from that, from all of that speculation. It is unsurpassed as a body among bodies. All the things you can fabricate, jhana meditation is unsurpassed. On the occasion that one remains focused on the body, free of distraction, ardent, alert, and mindful, they are putting aside craving and distress with reference to the world. On any occasion, when a Dhamma practitioner trains himself, I will breathe in and breathe out sensitive to rapture, sensitive to joyful engagement with the Dhamma. I will breathe in and breathe out sensitive to pleasure. I will breathe in and breathe out sensitive to mental fabrications. I will breathe in and breathe out calming mental fabrications. On this occasion, this Dhamma practitioner remains focused on feelings, free of distraction, ardent, alert, and mindful, while putting aside craving and distress with reference to the world. I'm going to stop there, and we'll start right on that saying on... uh, Tuesday, but that's enough for today's class, I think. Um, I'd like to hear what, and nobody's joining us online, so we'll just go around the room here and see what you have to say. Ram, good morning. Good morning. Um, and nobody has to say anything. If you'd like to be quiet this morning, just pass. It's it's like I'm reading this sutta for the first time. Same. And it's yeah. <laughs> And, and you look at this at the setting again. Um, here's the Buddha with you know in, in a rains uh, retreat, and the senior monks are there, you know the 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 arahants, and they're teaching novice monks, and all this teaching is going on, and the Buddha is just relishing in that. Yeah. It's you know it's it, there's his dharma at work. Yeah, he starts the, he starts the sutta by saying that he's very pleased with what he's seeing in the sangha. So he comes back and he basically he lays out the curriculum of the dharma. Yeah. This this is it. This is this is how the dharma works. Yeah. And and he's kind of, it sounds to me like he's given kind of a, a guidance to the senior monks like this is how you structure this. Yeah. And um he also shows how everything is founded on John. Yep. 
the whole Dharma rests on this single point of jhana. Yep. The awareness of the breath. And he lays it out in such detail that, you know, you, again, you can't just help but marvel at, yeah. at the... Um, you know, I've, I've, I've called the Dharma a complex thing. but it, It's complex, but it's also solid. Yeah. And, and it just hangs together. It's this, this beautiful mechanism that is just... It doesn't wear. It's... It's just, um, I just like, you know, it, I, I just marvel at it. And then in the, in the latter part, um, he also shows how then from the breath and, and jhana, all these other things develop in, in, yep. a, in a beautiful progression and get to the end. It's, this is, uh, uh, yeah, it's like graduate work here. Uh, it is and it isn't. He's teaching the Be- teacher. Because there's nothing advanced about it. No, but. there isn't. But um, it is, reading this now is really the first time that, I, that I've seen him um, showing the, the Painting how, the picture. how it all works. Yep. He paints the picture. This is how it works. Yeah. Look, we're starting here. We're going there. We're not getting distracted on the way, and we end up there. Yeah. And um, it's just, uh, oh, it's, it's just wonderful. Um, so, you know, when we were talking about the uh, um, uh, the other sangha in in London or in England, um, you know, you could, you could almost like sit them down and say listen this is it this is how this is how you you keep your sangha going yeah I thought about starting up again with them with this sutta maybe Mm -hmm. spread over four four, the first four classes yeah I might do that thank you Uh, thank you Ram Um, what what Ram is describing and the way he's able to see it the way he sees it now is because he's put a lot of Dhamma practice. He's able to see the whole picture, which is what the Buddha is painting here. Is this is what Dhamma practice looks like. And anyone can do it. You know, anyone can do it. Good morning, Jen. Good morning. I was actually thinking that I would like to do a retreat just on this. On it, on it. Yeah, maybe we'll do it. Just that one yeah. sutta, just to... Bring out all the other factors and... Be able to, you know... Read a piece of it, meditate, kind of, you know, holding that in mind. Is, well, maybe we'll do a weekend online retreat on it, mm-hmm. yeah. or maybe we'll do a, do one up at Wall. I mean, we'll yeah. do the fall retreat on this. Maybe. I mean, I I, I already have the yeah, set, but I can change set. it. Well, or we could do it. It doesn't have to be. It's a good idea, though. But yeah, that's um, so. Uh, just to go along with what Ron was saying, um, I sort of had like an insight um which as I was as I was reading this and, and meditating um of the you know directed thought so the the mechanisms of the mind but the directed thinking and the conditioned thinking and the directed thinking is what we have control over right now and mm-hmm. conditioned thinking is what we have control over. We can influence it over time. Yes. Through 
what we're holding in mind, practice. Um, yeah, you could say that we always have control over our conditioned mind, except we, we haven't uh, exercised it yet. But you could say that um, the conditioned mind is like the tapestry of our mind. You know, it's all the, all the little threads that we've attached ourselves to. Um, and in a little literal sense, we're undoing that that thing that we're using as a mask over our own reality. But but there is ultimately no substance to those things either, and that's an important thing to remember. Right, 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 right. You know, it's, yeah. whatever whatever substance felt as resistance to letting go, is is of our own doing as well, and it's only because of clinging that we that we hang on to views, craving and clinging. Right, right, right. Yeah. Which is just what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, so, directed thought is also can happen at the same time as conditioned thinking, but it's not oh, yeah. what we're focusing on. Yeah, again, that, using that, maybe it wasn't a good metaphor. Condition, the, hmm. the conditioned thinking actually makes the directed thought necessary, doesn't it? Because if we didn't have any conditioned thinking, we wouldn't be talking about terms like directed thought. We'd simply be awakened persons. So our minds are conditioned, and we have to have a method. And in that method, the first thing we do in jhana meditation is to notice our directed thoughts directed towards the breath and directed away from distraction. Mm -hmm. That's an aspect of directed thoughts. It's necessary. But as we start developing the Dhamma, even that falls away. And what we're left with is, a, is the fourth foundation of mindfulness. And that fourth, this is important too, John. Glad you brought this up. That fourth foundation of mindfulness in the moment due to immediate circumstances may be sad, but that's not a state that should be changed. It's an appropriate sadness based on what's occurring rather than a, a, rather than a sadness based on eye making. When, when, when my mommy dies... My mother dies. Mm. I should feel sad. That's an appropriate human reaction. But I should not start cursing out God or blaming poor doctors or anything else because people die. I have an understanding that as a consequence of having a human life, people die, including my mother. So I'm sad for the moment, but I don't take it personal. That allows me to move through that so-called grieving process in a healthy manner. it's, It's a human experience to lose a loved one and to feel sad. The Dhamma shouldn't and does not take us away from ordinary human experiences. In fact, it allows us to have them with refined mindfulness, meaning I don't need this to be any different than it is. And I, I, I'll just relate an experience that I have because it relates to this. My, my father died last year, and I didn't have it. I saw him a lot. He was 101, so I, you know, we all knew it was coming. But I hadn't seen him in about two weeks, which was a long time in our relationship towards the end. And I remember walking into the wake and seeing him in the, in the coffin for the first time. And I also had the thought when I was a kid, in sitting at a, my first funeral, thinking how awful it's going to be because I'm going to have to see my parents like that one day. I had that thought. And here I am, at least 55 years later, having that experience of walking in and having to see my father in the box. And it was a, it wasn't, I wasn't elated. But, and I was terribly sad, but I had this feeling of incredible gratitude for having, simply having known this man. And that's a feeling I don't think I could have had if I was so distraught over losing this person. Mm-hmm. Because then I'm past any chance of appreciating what's occurring and I'm into what I lost. 
And because I wasn't, I was able to appreciate what I had. And today, I'm, I'm almost brought to tears thinking about it because it was such a profound experience that the Dhamma allowed me to have. I mean, I'm sorry, Jen, I, I, I completely talked over what you were saying. No, it's okay. Um, I just, the, the two mechanisms of, of conditioned thinking and directed thought are just getting a deeper understanding of, of those two things yep. and how they kind of play off of each other, I think, yeah. is what happened today. And noticing that when um, I direct my thought, my thoughts to my breathing and the sensation of the breath in the body, um, the conditioned thinking uh, stops doesn't stop it it becomes not the focus and so when I'm not focused on that conditioned thinking it doesn't have the energy to yes to continue to, to manifest it's yes, kind yes. of just it automatically falls away and in there there is that's that's just the beginning, the subtle, further work yes. is um, all of this other stuff that he's referring to in, in this sutta where it's- Yes, but you're describing the sustenance. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but No, it's, it's okay. Important. But like, that's the sort of like the beginning, I feel like. Yes, that's the, that's the, yeah. that's the, that's the, that's the food that, that uh, yeah, karma is the field, consciousness the seed, craving right, the moisture. Right, right. That you're, you're feeding, you're feeding the seeds of your own discontent is what Jen is describing. Yeah. So when you focus on, but I think the, for me, my personal experience is that when I focus on the breath, it was, it stopped at that. It has stopped at, at bringing my mindfulness to the sensation of breathing. And even that alone, and I, I know you've said this before, can become conditioned. And then what happens there is that the directed thought can remain sort of idle rather yeah. than continuing the directed thought into all of this stuff that he's referring to here. It's like, okay, no, there's more directed thinking to, there's more sort of of you stepping into controlling your mind rather than yeah. allowing for, just kind of, idly watching and there's a difference there there's like there's like a it, stepping into control I'm sorry I should have written that down I was uh, using this to me. read the sutta um, rather than yeah there's there's like a there's an idleness there that I was that I realized that, you know that it's it's not you can't remain idle because once you remain idle, conditioned thinking takes over. Yes. So there was that kind of insight that I had with this. And so, so there's way more to do here, which is my well, selfish reason for why I want to have the retreat. You're, again, you're, you're <laughs> touching on such the, in the jhana, every sutta on jhana, the Saraputta sutta talks about, remember in, in those, all those suttas where the Buddha goes through these different, meditation practices coming during his time the, the mention of uh, neither perception nor non-perception mm -hmm. uh, infinite consciousness and then he always says and there's even deeper levels of concentration mm -hmm. 
that's what the focus is on. It's not achieving magical, mystical states in our own mind. It's just another distraction. Right, right, right. It's ever deeper levels of jhana. That's what jhana means. Concentration, by the way. So when we're talking about yeah. jhana, we're talking about a meditation practice whose sole focus is to deepen concentration, so that we can do just what Jen just described. Just makes me laugh because how many millions of times I've heard it. Yeah, but that's how the, that's how we learn the Dhamma too. Yeah, you have I mean, you hear it a million times, and eventually, yeah, it, it gets past that conditioned thinking. Mm-hmm. So it's just that way. So, Jen came here. She directed her thought towards this, and she had a breakthrough of understanding with conditioned thinking. And it's just that way. It's just that simple and direct. Thank you. Hello, Hello. David. I don't often do this, but typically the way I approach each teaching. Is I'll read the teaching. I won't read any of your commentary, and I just read it. And and then Saturday morning, really early, I'll reread it again and just look at your commentary. Huh. And amazingly, you're a good writer. And <laughs> one of the things I just captured uh, really struck me is uh, it just encouraged everyone read all the commentary. This is a very long sutta, but and it, I think the commentary is equally long, but it's well worth it. And at some point you said, continued ignorance of the Four Noble Truths only continues the ongoing distraction of dukkha. And that is brilliant. And I don't know if I ever thought of dukkha as distraction. Mm-hmm. Oh, it is. It goes to you join with your suffering and you're and it is a distraction and what Jen described with directed thought I think directed thought is early on dukkha because you're distracted you can't concentrate and as your practice deepens directed thought occurs and then your jhana deepens so I really thought that the again probably read many times but is a distraction and yep. any distraction you're experiencing is some level of you know unease yep. suffering uh, you know not right effort so it, it just read the commentaries as well yeah. thank you thank you David thanks for your kind words mm-hmm. I've I, I think I'm adequate enough to... Again, I really appreciate you, um, your kind words. I'm not... Uh, I'm having, I have an editor working on the next book. and She's coming up with interesting comments. Some of them has to do with context. And uh, what I told her was that I, you know, I have no aspirations to be the next Hemingway. And I want the books to be simple and effective. But I don't, they don't have to be perfect either. And so when I hear that, I know that they're, they're, they, they're written well enough that people can use the and develop the Dhamma, and that's my concern. So thanks for the feedback. Hello, Adam White. <coughs> Good morning. Or Adam Pink. Is that, did you well, say Pink? Well, Pink on top white. Ah, oh, okay. Pink, <laughs> I mean, I uh, thought it was Blackburn. I'm so confused now. <laughs> <laughs> no. Mr. White and Mr. Blue. Exactly. What was that movie? Oh, the Reservoir Dogs. That was, uh, that's right. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't watch it, though. Yeah, I never saw one either. <clears throat> anyway, thank you for this this morning. Um, Blue Adam chose a good one to start off with, huh? Mm, yeah. You did. <clears throat> um, it's just two things real quick. First of all, it's really great to have an instruction manual for mindfulness. Isn't it? Mm-hmm. 
Holy cow. And it's see. been there 2,600 years. Yeah. It's sitting right there the whole time. Um, the other thing was, could you um, make this, explain the distinction between mental fabrications and bodily fabrications? Oh, it, it, and it's just, it's just where they occur. A, a, a bodily fabrication is, is of the body. And, um, it's, that's, not, that's not something that occurs in the mind, though? Well, everything is. But, so a, a, a bodily fabrication could be an idea, like I should be six foot four so I can play center field for the Yankees. Or it could be reacting to, in a personal way, the, the body aging or going, you know, going blind or whatever a body does. The Buddha describes dukkha first in, in the physical components of living a life. So any aspect of suffering that is attributed to the body is a bodily fabrication. And it doesn't mean that, in other words, I'm not, I don't want to use myself as an example all the time. That's right. We're not, we're not fabricating an actual condition in the body. I can't get past it. Such as blindness. That's not a, fa- I'm not fabricating that I'm going blind, but taking it personally would be the fabrication. So right. that would be, and so you're actually, the, the, the fabrication is a combination here with mental and bodily fabrications. But you can see, as Ron pointed out, the, the complicated nature, but as the Buddha would teach, it's all fabrications. It's all rooted in ignorance of Four Noble Truths. So sort of the two, two different sources of distraction. Well, there's actually three. There's also verbal. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, and again, what, what is it? Screw you. I mean, that's a, that's a verbal fabrication. Or it could be anything that, you, that would be used in a manipulative way. And often, compassion is used in a manipulative way, too, isn't it? Compassion without wisdom is often manipulative. Using it, right. it's the woke movement, isn't it? Um, and so we really start learning. That's why I call this authentic Dhamma. We we learn to be authentic human beings. There's many wonderful people, human beings, who were in, inauthentically wonderful, and they likely didn't create a lot of stress in other people's lives, but they did create a lot of stress in their own lives from that way of looking at the world. And the Buddha wanted every human being to develop a calm and peaceful mind if that was what they chose. A great question. Did you have any other comments? Um, not for not right now. Really? Thank you. Really, really appreciate what all, all three of these guys have, yeah. have said. We've got some pretty good up, teachers here. Up to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the uh, fall retreat is going to be... Uh, all the teachers are going to teach on it, too. Oh, so I can't wait. Be a, a, an auspicious occasion. So, thank, thank you, John. Good morning, Kevin. Good morning, John. So, um, it's, a, it's amazing how simple and how complicated <laughs> this is. You know, uh, a few weeks ago we talked about, we did the uh, Sinsapa Sutta, where it's a handful of leaves. And Buddha said, really, this is just a handful of leaves. There's nothing more to it. And then now this is when you look at the leaves. You know, you look at the shape of each leaf, you look at the veins, you look at the stem, you look at the flesh of the leaves, and it just really fleshes it out. Okay. But it's still a handful of leaves. It's not, mm-hmm. it's not yep. the whole forest, it's not the whole world. It's just very concentrated, okay. and it's just beautiful about the way he brings it out. And the sutta and the uh, Satipatthana sutta, of course, just really are so basic to that. Yeah. Yeah. And it is a great, I think, thing something for somebody coming the first time as well. It makes me think back to when I came the first time, which is almost five years ago, and I thought, I'm going to just learn how to meditate, and that's going to fix everything. It was all about meditation. I always, I sort of thought, I just have to erase all my thoughts, and yeah. that'll be fine. 
and and then I found you and it was like, well, he, he'll teach me how to do this better. And then I realized, yeah, there's a lot more to it. <laughs> and there's the Eightfold Path, and there's the Four Noble Truths, and then there's Adhisattva. So it's, it's a whole thing. It's, 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 it's big. But, but you were simple. right about the mechanism. The mechanism is simple. That was all you had to do. Yeah. 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 <laughs> there you go. So thank well, you so much, and thank, thank you all for your comments as well. Thank you, Kevin. You are Kevin is such a good example of just right effort and staying with it. And I, I'm not putting words in your mouth when I say you've reaped, re, you've reaped great benefits. No. I have. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And again, everything the Buddha taught is to be practically applied in this life. So, uh, Adam, what do you, Adam Blue, what do you think of your first class here? Um, I mean, it's a lot. There's yeah, a lot of is. terms that I'm not terribly familiar with yeah. and in my own independent study you know I've, I've sort of had a hard time understanding the connection between the theology which is all totally unobjectionable to me which is why I'm part, part of the reason I'm attracted to it there's nothing I've read that I have a hard time with it all seems sensible and logical and deep you know yeah. but the connection between the theology and the practice of meditation I've never really, I'm, I'm still struggling with. So that's, I think, what we were talking about. It is. Yeah. Um, um, so, uh, but I, I did have a question about uh, fab, mental fabrication. Mm -hmm. I wasn't really clear on, is that, if you could talk just briefly about that again. I, I wasn't sure if that's, if that's simply, well, tell me, what do you think? I mean, I, I didn't really understand how that fit in. There, I, I, I'm going to answer your question, but if you did a search on fabrications on the website, you come through a lot of suttas that speak directly to that. But very simply put, a fabrication is a corruption of our view of ourselves in relation to the world. And because of that, because of a lack of understanding of the way things are for noble truths, we start in another, another explanation of fabrication is to fabricate something, to make something else out of out of a series of parts. Um, I, I use different pieces of wood cut to certain sizes to make a wooden chair. The parts themselves don't constitute the chair. All the parts put together in a certain way constitute the chair. They, in the making of the chair is the fabrication. In the making of my view of myself in relation to the world is a fabrication. And because it's rooted in a lack of understanding of what Four Noble Truths actually define and describe, I can't help but continue to fabricate my life and it's because I'm living that fabrication that I'm creating all the stress and suffering in my life in my life there's in there's stress and suffering that is inherent in a human life but if it's not taken personally then it's just seen as stress and suffering so the Buddha teaches dukkha this way birth is suffering birth is dukkha sickness is dukkha aging is dukkha death is dukkha not getting what you want is dukkha getting what is undesired is dukkha and he would always conclude that statement by saying, in short, the five clinging aggregates are dukkha. And I don't want to take this too far, but the five clinging aggregates are form, feeling, perceptions, mental fabrications, and consciousness. It's consciousness that is ongoing thinking, rooted in ignorance of Four Noble Truths. Don't cling to any of that. But all of that, all of that, birth, sickness, aging, and death, not getting what you want, being afraid of receiving what you don't want, is the five clinging aggregates. The five clinging aggregates describe the fabrication of that previous experience, the corrupting of it. And now we're locked in a body that, that believes its own fabrication. 
So if you, if you understand that, then the only way you can extricate yourself from that is to understand what it means to be an authentic human being. That's what the Dhamma is. So it takes us from that place of fabricating reality because we don't know who we are in relation to the world, establishes a foundation of concentration, and then presents a, a, an integrated path to describing what a human being actually is. And in that way, we develop a common, peaceful mind through understanding and knowing rather than a speculative fabrication. Another one, such as, if I do all these things, if I bow 108,000 times, when I die, I'll get to some Buddhist heaven. That's a, that's a fabrication as far as the Buddha is concerned. Anything that would take us out of this human moment and establish ourselves outside of this physical experience is a fabrication as far as the Buddha is concerned. So you ask a very basic question, Adam, <laughs> That tells me you have you are inclined towards the right way. So I would encourage you to keep going and uh, join us whenever you can. The more you get it, the more you come to class, the more you're going to get out of it. Um, use the website; uh, it's a great resource. And uh, you have any other questions? Just please always feel free to, to send me a, an email. You have any questions about Swanee's class? No, I just I wanted to comment on something you said uh, about you feeling sad but not taking it personally, which is a great description of you know kind of what attracted me to some of this is the self-identification yeah with a a, a feeling a thought um you know i want to be rid of that you know i really i just can't i can't do it anymore you're in the right place the whole dominant it is about recognizing and abandoning what you just described called eye making. But like I'm an attorney and I do litigation work and so it's like I'm a performer and, and I have to be an analyst and I have to be a you know, all this stuff. It's I don't don't feel bad for me. I like my job. But you know, there's there there's so much deadline pressure. Yeah. And not just okay, here's my report, but like, okay, now I've got to, you know, do this routine, whatever it is, deposition, mm-hmm. trial. You know, and I had an experience, and it's been like that my whole career, where like I'm, I'm so stressed out about something that's upcoming. And about three months ago, I had a series of depositions of some cops in a police brutality case. I represent plaintiffs only. And um, I was up all night. I was up all night. I slept for maybe an hour and a half. Mm-hmm. And I did fine. Depositions were fine. And I was like, you know what? I just don't want to live like this anymore. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be so reactive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and so that is the whole point. It, 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 of course, obviously, it's not just the legal profession, it's everybody. Yeah. And whether we even have a job, we're still prone to this. The, the Buddha started out with making that statement. There is stress. It's the first noble truth. What he's saying is, as a consequence of having a human life, there's going to be stress. You got me thinking, there was a, an attorney that joined us about five or six years ago, um, really developed a Dhamma, amazingly. We might even know him, once I tell you his name. Uh, he has since moved down to uh, Miami, but I'm sure he'd be happy to talk with you if you want to talk with, with him. His name is Anthony Murgatroyd. He's local here. Okay, cool. Yeah. You want me to hook you up? Yeah, sure. S- send me yeah. an email, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll give you, I'll give his email, your email to him. Okay. So, uh, but this is, uh, and I remember when he first called me, um, in quite a bit of distress, but with the understanding that maybe that was his question. Do you think you can help? And I said, well, I don't know if I can, but if you come to class, maybe this practice will. And it, and it really did. It, it, it helped them out a lot. So. And it helps everyone. It's, it's, what it's, it's, it's there for, the, for practical reasons. And there's no theology behind this. There's no religiosity about it. It's all just 
practical, a practical way of living in the world. He says zip line right through dependent origination with his story. So it's like, yes, <laughs> yes. I mean, and then he wants to stop. Yeah. You might want to uh, read that dependent origination to on website. But if you go and start at the welcome page and just follow where it tells you to go, uh, you'll very quickly develop a foundation of what we're talking about here and continue with the practice. And within weeks, I think you're going to notice it. Uh, a more common, well-concentrated mind. It's just the way it works for people. I'm glad you joined us, and welcome to our Sangha. Thank you. Um, all right, we're going to uh, conclude this on Tuesday, and uh, I think, maybe it's going to be too fast, and then we'll, we'll conclude this series with the Upada Sutta. And then our, our teachers, our other teachers, are going to start teaching more over the summer and the fall, and like I said, they're gonna, uh, we're all going to teach on the retreat in the fall, too. Well, anything else? We'll finish in the usual way with meta. So again, just take a moment to become mindful of your in-breath and your out-breath. And let that mindfulness of your breath unite your mind and your body. Uh, these are the Buddha's words on meta from the Karaniya Metta Sutta. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born. May all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class this morning. Peace. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.